Can we uh, start with prayer this morning? Be great. Father, thank you for this morning. We come before you. And uh, Lord, yeah, <laughs> like that lost wretch, we come before you having no rights to any of your blessing. And yet we assert ourselves this morning and ask that your amazing grace, that the power of your love would come into our hearts and our lives, that you, Lord, would meet us right where each one of us need you to meet us. I pray, Lord, that you would look upon us with compassion. I pray, Lord, for each one of us who is sick, those who are sorrowing, those who are struggling, I pray for those who are alone, for those who are depressed. I pray for those who are facing life challenges they don't know how they can overcome. I pray, Lord, for those who are in distressed relationship and it's wreaking havoc on their lives. Lord, we come before you and we assert ourselves before you, not that we have any right to do it. And we throw ourselves at your mercy, Lord, and ask that you would have compassion upon us and that you would meet us right at our point of need. We pray, Lord, for your peace, for your joy, for your love. God, grant us your patience, your goodness, your kindness, your faithfulness, Lord, we pray for the healing of our hearts, our lives, our relationships, our bodies. And Lord Jesus, we bring ourselves to you and we will pray, Lord, the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. Uh, Mark chapter 7 is where we're at this morning. In your pew Bibles, it's page number 998. My name is Tom Vanderwell, and uh, Wendy and I don't normally worship here in the sanctuary. We're part of uh, about 70, 75 uh, family units here at 3rd that make the auditorium down the hallway our worship home on Sunday mornings. So I'm usually in there. So I'd like, if I could, this morning to to tell you a little bit about my story, since I don't have the opportunity to see many of you uh, each Sunday or get to know you very well. Um, and could we have the, the core values graphic? I wanna, my, Kevin has been talking for the last several weeks about experiencing Jesus and how important it is for us to experience Jesus. And as we've been studying Mark, we're talking about all these different people who experience Jesus in life-changing ways. So let me tell you about my experience with Jesus. Now, I was raised uh, in a Methodist church in Des Moines, Iowa, okay? 
And so I went through, as, at 13, 12, 13 years old, I went through the obligatory United Methodist Church confirmation class, right, which everyone does. So I was a card-carrying, certificate-bearing member of the United Methodist Church there in Des Moines. And in that confirmation class, I went every Wednesday night and I'd do the fill-in-the-blank thing for the little, you know, the little uh, study that we had to do. I memorized all the books of the Bible in order. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, hold my horse so I can get on. <laughs> Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, go eat popcorn. I aced that. And even I remember that at the bottom, of the, there was a little, little prayer about asking Jesus into your heart, and, and it asked me to read it and, and then sign it. So I read it, and I signed it. But then over the next couple of years, the reality is, okay, so I, I'm passed. I got my certificate. But when I think about my identity, I still didn't know whose I was. I remember sitting in my bed one morning, it was like eighth grade, and I'm looking at my hand, having this existential moment going, I'm this person in this body. How did I get here? Why me? Why am I in this body? Why was I born to my parents? Why would so I'm having this like, I don't know. What, I don't know who I am, why I'm here. And as far as belonging goes, I remember feeling really awkward, because I was, you know, junior high years. You're just... You're just a, you know, boogerhead. You just, you know, kid. I was, and I was a. I, my parents left me and my sister home uh, alone for the first time over the weekend, and of course we had a party, and the whole Hoover High School showed up and started breaking things, and you know how that went over with mom and dad. I was selfish, I was self-centered. I even had Mrs. Dykema, my home ec teacher, we were uh, having a student council meeting after school and that day they made uh, chocolate malts in, in home ec. So she said, uh, does anybody wanna make a chocolate malt? And I'm like going, yeah, I wanna make a chocolate malt. So I got up and I made myself a chocolate malt. And then I sat down at the table with my chocolate malt in front of me and she looked at me and she goes, were you gonna offer to make it for anybody else or just you? And then I'll never forget that she stood up and she shook her head and she goes, so selfish. And I remember feeling really, really bad because she was right. I had no purpose. I just showed up at school every day. I did my thing, but I didn't feel like I don't know why I'm here, what I'm doing. And as far as intimacy goes, you know, I, I couldn't even conceive of that. So a couple months later, I'm in ninth grade now, and it was February, so February 20, uh, 41 years ago this month. And my friend, a couple friends from church, uh, Amy and Randy, invited me to go to Marshalltown, Iowa, because there was gonna be this weekend, this guy was coming to speak, special event, uh, that Amy knew who it was, and so she invited me and a bunch of people, so Randy and I went with her that night and her dad. And that night, I, at the First Baptist Church in Marshalltown, Iowa, I heard this man talk about Jesus in a way that I had never heard before. And here's the thing, I may have heard it before, but that night, the eyes of my heart were opened. And that night, I got out of my pew at the end of, of the evening when they had uh, an invitation and I came down to the front and I knelt and I gave my life to Christ. 
and something happened. Couldn't even define it, but I knew something was different. I had an experience with Jesus. And all of a sudden, my identity changed. I knew who I was, because I had given my life to Jesus. The next night, my sister, I said, Jody, you are coming with us to Marshalltown tomorrow night. And no ifs, ands, but you are coming with us. And she's like, okay, all right, all right. So that night she went, and that night she walked down and gave her life to Christ. Amy and Randy both had experiences that weekend. We had a Jesus experience. Now fast forward three months, that summer, the same guy that preached that night was coming to Meredith Drive Reform Church in Des Moines. And my parents tell this story that we were kind of excited. We were like, yeah, this is great because we love to hear this guy preach. And my parents said to themselves, something has happened to our children and we don't know what it is. Because they used to always fight like cats and dogs and now they get along. They used to disobey everything we told them and have parties when we leave town for the weekend. They used to be disobedient and do bad things and we had to always think about all of them and now all of a sudden, whenever we ask them to do something, they do it. What has gotten into our children? So they said, well, whatever this, we're gonna go to this meeting, we'll hear whatever it is that our children heard from this guy. And that weekend, both of my parents surrendered their life to Christ. And our entire family was changed because we knew who we belonged to. And Jody and Randy and Amy and I began to grow together and belong to one another and share our faith together. And then we had purpose because now we were like, how can we do what God wants us to do? And we began to grow more intimately in our friendships because we were sharing our lives and Christ together. So when Kevin talks about having this Jesus experience, that's what I think of, because that was my experience. So let's talk about two experiences. We've been talking about all these experiences in Mark, so go ahead, go to Mark. We're gonna go to Mark. Chapter seven, now remember, let's remember the context. A couple things in context. I've been, you know, I've been studying and teaching uh, scripture for you know, 40 years. And one of the things that I find is that we often approach the, the scripture of the day with our magnifying glass. So we're gonna talk about two episodes in verses 24 through 30 and verses 31 through 36. So we get out our magnifying glass and we look at these two events. Or, better yet, we even get our microscope out and we look at the words and we look at what they mean and we look at it through this little lens. But sometimes it's more important to launch your drone and have that drone, your lens go up, you know, a thousand feet in the air and see things across the landscape of how these episodes fit in. So 
I want to launch the drone real quick. Say, remember, here's the context. Mark is writing primarily to Jewish people who are wondering if Jesus was the Messiah. And he is trying to convince them that yes, he is the Messiah. That's the purpose. Now if Gentiles read this and they learn about who Jesus is, great, but that is Mark's overarching purpose. And we also know, just like Kevin shared last week, remember talking about the hand washing? We know that the Jewish people at that time, uh, they had a very fundamentalist view of Judaism. And by the way, if you want to do a little extra study on that, on the 30th of January, go back in our auditorium uh, message, we talked about uh, the basic tenets of fundamentalism and how, how the Jews of Jesus' day were basically fundamentalists and how that differed from what Jesus was really teaching. So if you want to do a little extra, great. It's amazing stuff. So these Jews are, have this uh, fundamentalism where they operate in a binary world, black, white, yes, no, clean, unclean. If you are unclean, bad. If you are clean, then you can approach God. So their whole life was seen through this lens. So now let's read. And could we have the map up as we jump into this? Great. So Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. By the way, if you're studying, taking notes today, circle the word little. We're gonna come back to that. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Jesus says, first, let the children eat all they want for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, (laughs) for such a reply, you can go home because the demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There were some people brought to him, a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. He spit and touched the man's tongue. He took up, looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh, he said to him, (laughs) which means be open. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did this, the more they talked about him. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Okay, so let's look at this from, the, from our drone perspective. Kevin and Clayton have been sharing over the last couple of weeks about the fact that Uh, Jesus has, the crowds have been crowding in, following him wherever he goes. He's healing people left and right. He's spending all day teaching and healing and he's tired because even though he is 100% God, he's also 100% human and he got exhausted. So what do you do when you're exhausted? You take a vacation, right? So if you look on the map and you look and see where Tyre is, I want you to kind of get the perspective here. So Jerusalem is way down south here by the Dead Sea. 
Jesus' ministry was in the area of the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum, there on the North Shore, is his base of operations. So when he leaves to take a little break, to take a little vacation, uh, go to the ocean, it's always a great thing, be by the water. So he goes up to Tyre, beautiful area, by the way. Tyre, that whole coast, uh, is just gorgeous resort country. So he's up there, and he doesn't, he goes to him and says, don't let anybody know I'm here. Anybody else? Have you ever done that? <laughs> right, right, yes. Wendy and I, when we're, we're exactly, we go down to the Lake of the Ozarks. Shh, <laughs> nobody there. There's, you know, we kind of veg out. Well, that's what Jesus was doing. So it's in this context, as Jesus uh, is saying, I don't want to be bothered by anyone, that this woman, all of a sudden, just kind of, <laughs> kind of breaks in, and she falls at his feet. Now remember. Clean, unclean. Is she clean or is she unclean? Well, she's absolutely unclean. Okay, now, from our drone perspective, do you remember back to the book of Acts, for those of you who were with us in the book of Acts study a couple years ago, when in chapters 10 and 11 of the book of Acts, what we found is that through that through the book of Acts, there was a big conflict because Jesus is Hebrew. He's Jewish. The disciples are all Hebrew, Jewish. His followers are primarily Hebrews, Jewish. And so they were a Hebrew, Jewish sect in the early days of the Jesus movement. But then all of a sudden, all of these Gentiles, unclean Gentiles, began to follow Jesus in, by the thousands. And so there was this conflict brewing about should we make the Gentiles become Jews or do we Jews need to give up our Judaism because Jesus has changed the way we're operating. And so in Acts 10 and 11, you see where Tyre is up there on the North Shore, just below that is Caesarea Philippi. And Peter gets called from Jerusalem up to Caesarea Philippi to the house of a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. And Peter enters the home of an unclean Roman. He preaches the gospel to their family. They all become Christians. They all receive the Holy Spirit. They're all speaking in tongues. He gets served unclean, non-Jewish food. And God tells Peter, it's okay. This is going away. You can eat anything. And he did. And that moment was was kind of the linchpin moment in the early Jesus movement when Peter, the leader of the Jesus movement, says, no, we don't have to worry about the clean, unclean anymore. Whatever Christ has made clean is never unclean. So now Jesus is up in Tyre, and do you think when Mark is writing this gospel, when is he writing it? He's writing it around 60 AD, about the time that this clean, unclean, Jewish-Gentile conflict is raging. And so Mark puts this story in because there's a parallel for everyone who's reading it. Every Jewish person is reading that. Again, that's the context. He's trying to help them understand. And people would see, oh, Tyre is right up there by Caesarea Philippi. So Jesus did the same thing as Peter. This, this story we've all heard about Peter. Jesus 
foreshadowed that in his own ministry. So when Jerusalem is the, is the center hub of Judaism, of the Hebrew religion, and the further away you get, the more and more Gentile people, and Greece is up north, so you have more and more Greeks like this woman. And Kevin has told us many, many times that a good Jewish man in those days used to say, thank you God, this is the prayer every day, thank you God that I am not a woman, thank you God that I am not a Gentile, thank you God that I am not a dog. And in those days, dogs were not domesticated. Kind of like be saying to us today that I'm not like a stray coyote. That's a mangy, rabies-filled, dirty, scroungy dog. That's the way that they perceived it. And dog was a racial epithet that the Jews used to any Gentile. Because in the Jewish mind, you were so unclean, you were no better than a mangy dog. Now I know that in our world, we, we talk about prejudice a lot and we need to talk about that because it exists. But prejudice, prejudice thought is not confined to America. People are prejudiced all over the world. It is part of the human condition. I remember our, we did a, a client asked us to do a, a quality assessment for a team of Spanish speaking agents on their call center. And so we hired a couple of our friends who are actually uh, uh, professors of language. Both of them are, are uh, graduates of Central College, now teach at another university. But they helped us do this so they uh, were understanding what's happening in this Spanish uh, queue, the Spanish line. And one of the things that I learned in this process, I'd never knew this. They opened the, my eyes to see that there is a lot of prejudice among Latin-speaking nations. In fact, one, uh, one of our partners graduated from Central, she's actually from Spain, and she's like, oh yeah, Spanish people look down on any Latin American Hispanic. There's prejudice there, and even within Latin American countries, there is a pecking order. So one of the things that I identified in this group is that a Spanish-speaking agent from one Hispanic group, took a call from a, person, a customer from another Spanish group, and how could you tell? Because they had a, an accent. And they treated them poorly because of the prejudice. And I'm like, well, I never would have picked up on that. Prejudice happens everywhere. And it's certainly happening in Jesus' day. So this woman, first of all, it's a woman, strike one, Second, she's a Greek, a Gentile, strike two. And she's a pagan, strike three, you're out, right? She comes in and bows at Jesus' feet. And Jesus, she, here's the thing about her. She knows who she is in, G, in Jesus' eyes. She knows what the Jews think of her. She knows that they consider her a dog. She knows exactly what people think of her, but she, she wants her daughter healed so bad that she is willing to assert herself in front of Jesus. Tim Kimmel in his book uh, calls it rightless assertiveness. Think about that, rightless assertiveness. 
I know I have no right to it, but yet I'm still going to assert myself and ask this of you. Now compare that to America. Because in America, we see everything through the lens of rights, <laughs> demand, and litigation. Don't we? This is my right. Jesus, I have been going to church my whole life. I sat through that confirmation class. It was boring. I memorized all the books of the Bible. It didn't do anything for me. I give, I don't know, 100 bucks a year to the church. You owe this to me. It's my right for you to answer my prayer. I demand that you answer my prayer. If not, I'm gonna sue your rear end. That's the way we see. This woman though comes in and she says, I have no right. I know I'm a dog in your eyes. I know you think nothing of me and I know that you think that I'm, I'm making you unclean just walking in your presence. But I'm still gonna be here. I still am gonna bow at your feet. I'm gonna ask you to do this. What a different way of looking at things. And Jesus is always struck by assertive faith, isn't he? The Roman centurion said to heal my servant. The woman who was bleeding and she just touched the hem of his garment. The leper who approached him and said, if you want to, you can make me clean. All of these are examples of, of this rightless assertiveness. And every time it happens, Jesus responds like, okay, you're getting it. I like this. So that's how Jesus responds. But it, it, what's, his response is sort of interesting. He tells this parable, this brief parable, and it's like a challenge. All right, you know who you are in my eyes, a good Jewish person, rabbi's eyes. First let the children eat all they want. And Jesus was very clear. He came primarily to preach to the Hebrew people. He was the Messiah of the Hebrew people, and he knew that they were going to reject him, but that was his mission, okay? So even the children of Israel, let them eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now the interesting thing, remember how do you circle the word little? Okay, we're gonna get out our microscope now. The word little there, and then it's her little daughter, and he uses the diminutive form of dog. In other words, he says puppy. Little girl, puppy. Yes, it's not right to take the children of Israel's bread and toss it to the puppies. Your daughter's a puppy in the eyes of a good Hebrew. And she answers him and says, even the puppies under the table eat their children's crumbs. Now, stop right there. For Six chapters now, Jesus has been telling parable after parable after parable after parable after parable. And what happens every time? The disciples go, um, Jesus, can you explain that to us? We didn't quite get it. Go back to verse 18, where he says, are you so dull? You still don't get it? You've been following me. I've been doing all this stuff. I've been talking to you countless. I've explained it this time over time. You're still so dull you don't get what I'm talking about? Now, this Gentile pagan woman, not only does she understand the parable, but she answers him within it. 
She is the first person recorded in the Gospel of Mark who gets it. She understands exactly what he's saying. And she's like, yes, Lord. Let me take this parable. Okay, let me respond to you in the parable. Yeah, even the dogs get the scraps off the table. And when she answered that, <laughs> Jesus, I had to believe Jesus was impressed. You get it. You, you Gentile pagan woman, understand what I'm talking about. My disciples still haven't gotten it. Our daughter, Taylor, after she graduated from high school, went to um, Morocco on a mission trip with YWAM. Three months in a discipleship training school, three months in Morocco. And um, it was a really bad experience. Uh, YWAM's a great organization. Our sister, Susanna, works for them. It's a great organization, great things. But for Taylor, it was life-changing bad experience. And I remember her Skyping me from a coffee shop in Morocco. And she said, Dad, she's crying. Tell me how bad it's getting. She said, Dad, the only two people from this entire trip, the two people who have been Christ-like, one of them is a Muslim shopkeeper and his wife, who when we came into their shop, befriended us and invited us to their house for dinner. And the other is a kid on my team who's an atheist. He doesn't believe, and the only reason he came on this mission is because his parents said they'd pay for college if he'd go to this mission. But he doesn't believe in Jesus, so a Muslim and an atheist are the most Christ-like people. And she's crying and she goes, what do I do with that? Why are young people leaving the church in record numbers? Why are my children's generation just choosing not to go to church? Could it be that because they're sick of being among people who every Sunday listen to the word and they study the word and they go through all the motions, but they've never experienced Jesus. And could it be that because they see people outside, an atheist, a Muslim, who get it and actually are more Christ-like than the people who say they're Christians. So Jesus heals this woman's daughter and the demons go away. So let's go on to the deaf mute. Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre, went through Sidon. He's now going back down to the Sea of Galilee, the region of the Decapolis. The Decapolis is right along the eastern coast there of the Sea of Galilee. Some people brought a blind man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hands on them. And one of the interesting things, in our text group, uh, been having a great fun in the text group, Steve and Dana and Sarah, we, um, one of the things that has been coming out in our observations is that every time Jesus does a miracle, he kind of does it in a different way. 
It's a different method. It's not like this, this one kind of ingredient method that he takes. Everybody he heals is going to The bleeding woman just touched the hem of his garments. With a deaf mute man, he just, yeah, spit on his tongue, put his hands on him. But here's the thing. Notice what it says. When they bring him to him, brought the deaf mute to him, it says they begged Jesus to place his hands on him. And here's one of the things that I want us to notice is that I have learned that Jesus always meets us where we're at, in our need. Jesus didn't touch his tongue and his ears because Jesus needed to do that. Jesus could say the word and it would be done. Jesus did it because this man and whoever brought him to them, they needed it. Wherever you are at, Jesus wants to meet you right where you're at, no matter where it is today, right where you're at. Okay, let's get out our microscope. One more thing. I'm going to ask the uh, worship team can come on up. Verse 31, it says that he was deaf and could hardly speak, deaf and mute. That word is a very rare word. It's only used one other time in Scripture, and that is in Isaiah chapter 35. So your assignment this week is I'd like you to read Isaiah 35. I'd like you to launch your drone and say, okay, because that's what Mark was doing. He's pointing all of his good Jewish readers to Isaiah 35. And why is that Scripture important? Why is Mark pointing in there? It's talking about the Messiah. One of the things that it says in there, in Mark, or I'm sorry, in Isaiah 35, is it says that the Messiah will come with divine retribution. And Tim Keller makes a really amazing observation. The Messiah, Jesus, did not come to bring divine retribution he came to bear divine retribution. See, even John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist had been out in the wilderness and going, the Messiah's coming with fire and he's gonna burn all you bad people up. <laughs> he's gonna unplant you and he's preaching hellfire and brimstone. Why on earth did John send his disciples to say, oh, are you the one we're expecting or should I expect somebody else? Because John was expecting him to bring it. Jesus came to bear it. This morning, as the worship team um, leads us, I really feel like I would be remiss if I didn't give you the opportunity to experience Jesus. So we don't do this often, but we're going to do it this morning as the worship team leads. I'll remember that day that I... I was sitting right over here in First Baptist Church of Marshtown, about right here. And I'll never forget coming down and kneeling. And what made the difference that, that night? I know for me, as I look back on it, the difference was because, because that's the night I surrendered. That's the night I gave up trying to be a follower on my terms. And I said, Jesus, you can have me, all of me, my life, 
my heart, whatever. I'll go where you want me to go. I will do what you want me to do. My life is yours. So this morning, as we uh, sing this last song, deacons, elders will be here for communion. Come on up if you want to take communion. But if you're sitting there and you're kind of going, I have never had the Jesus experience. <laughs> and maybe the Holy Spirit's been knocking on your heart going, you, you. Then as we sing, I'm going to be right down here. And if you'd like to come and give your life to Jesus and surrender your heart, then come join me.